Welcome to Between Ourselves. For this episode, I am slightly breaking the rules of my own podcast. I usually focus on the voices of black women in Europe, but this is a conversation between me, a black Christian woman of mixed heritage, a black Christian man, and a Kurdish Muslim Dutch woman. It will become clear why I'm spelling out all of the elements of their identities in a moment. So this is the audio from part of my graduation show from the Critical Studies Department at the Sandberg Institute in Amsterdam. The audio is from June 2019, so this means that people's job roles or denominations may be slightly different now. For the panel, I brought us together to discuss making space for faith in art, arts education and academia. So I will hand over to myself now. Okay, uh, so welcome. Thank you for coming inside from the sunshine. Um, so my name is Sekai McConey. Can you all hear me okay? Yes? So my name is Sekai McConey. Uh, I'm a second year in the Critical Studies Department and I'm graduating. Um, and so the name of this panel discussion is Making Space for Faith in Arts arts education and academia and it's a panel discussion between me uh, Alina Jabari and Reverend Jarrell Robinson Brown. Uh, <laughs> uh, so I'm going to set up the context a little bit about the discussion and then give you some brief bios on my lovely guests. Uh, so I've started thinking more about faith and spirituality or religion and how I don't feel like it's so rigid readily discussed within art spaces, arts education, or academia. Um, and I think that maybe that comes from an assumed conservatism of uh, people who have a faith. Um, and so I kind of wanted to make space for people that are kind of doing stuff slightly differently and to have like an open discussion of that and possible ways forward. Um, and there'll be some time at the end for some questions if anyone has any. Uh, so, uh, first of all, we have Jerome, who is a Methodist minister based in London. Uh, he recently became the honorary chaplain at King's College London. Um, he trained in ordination at Wesley House, Cambridge, and served his first appointment in South Wales. His interests are in church history, late antiquity, queer theology, and liberation theology. And he studied music before entering seminary and is passionate about issues of justice and equality, particularly within the life of the church. So, can we welcome Jerome? Yeah, Jerome is also like a trained pianist and organ player, hashtag just saying. Um, <laughs> he's going to Harlem to go and see a famous organ there on Sunday. Yeah. Uh, Sir Alina. Alina was born in the Netherlands, but is of Kurdish descent. She identifies as both Dutch and Kurdish. Uh, Alina studied law and criminology and is now completing her second MA, this time in theology, where she's focusing on Islamic feminism and liberation theology. And she's also the founder of Har Minaret, where she organises bi-monthly gatherings on gender, sexuality and decoloniality at the intersection of faith and religion. And she's interested in creating more inclusive religious spaces. So let's welcome Alina. Uh, and so the way I've kind of positioned this is I'm the art school representative. 
Um, and obviously, Jarrell went to Cambridge, so he has a more like UK academic experience. And Elena, you're at Buffoon currently, yes. so you have like academic experience in the Netherlands. Um, so I'm going to jump in with my first question, and that is, how would you describe your faith or spirituality? Um, I think for me it's a mix of things. I would say that I have this kind of mix of very Catholic spirituality, but also evangelical spirituality. Um, I'm a Methodist, but I come from a very sacramental tradition. Um, and I think as a black Christian, there's a sense of prophetic Christianity, of um, reading the Bible in the light of issues that are happening in the world at the time, um, and seeing that relevance today. Um, so speaking out quite powerfully and clearly on situations in our world and within the church. So. It's a kind of Catholic, evangelical, prophetic, sacramental mix of lots of things. That's but very inclusive. That's, it just, my faith is naturally that way. Um, yeah, that, that would be a very big descriptive for me. And I know that you're like a big fan of James Baldwin, who also was like a child preacher. Yeah, he was. Yeah. Um, and so in that prophetic tradition, do you, do you feel like resonance in like the way he writes and, or wrote and speaks? James Baldwin saved my life. Like if I if I knew about him when I was fourteen, life would have been so different. He is like the most inspirational person, and one of the people from history that I relate to the most because he has this mix of deep Christian faith at one point, which he critiques very strongly mm -hmm. at a young age. Um, he's gay and has this identity, which he also is very happy to own publicly at a young age as a Black American. Um, and he's also an intellectual. All those three parts of his life come together, which. There weren't many people I could think of for whom that was the case. And I just love how he writes and his whole sense of owning his identity unapologetically. Yeah. Like life goals. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Um, Annalena, how would you describe your faith or spirituality? Yes. <laughs> um, so I always struggle a bit with identifying it specifically because as a Muslim I feel that the definitions that exist are kind of definitions that are projected upon us, like, oh, are you progressive, are you this, are you that, which is always the question that I'm indeed then asked if I'm saying I'm a Muslim. Mm -hmm. uh, so to kind of like leave that aside, I would say for myself, um, my spirituality is very personal mm -hmm. on the one hand. On the other hand, it's public in the sense that um, it inspires me uh, in my commitment to justice, in my commitment to, to transformation, social change, in my, well, basically activism. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, and I, I think a big part of how I understand my spirituality is uh, worship through, through serving people around you. Uh, yeah, that I understand. And I like how both of you, uh, for both of you, liberation theology is really important. And so I think maybe in my church experiences, I found it frustrating, kind of divorcing of politics from faith and to kind of have this apolitical stance in a church space, um, I found really problematic. So I think that was also the reason why I chose both of you, because I thought you were kind of really willing to engage with your faith and the politics and activism at the same time. Um, so in light of that, what are some misconceptions that people have about you because of your faith? <laughs> I mean, we can start, <laughs> you know. But um, I think it's, it's, it goes both ways, like as soon as uh, I share that I'm Muslim, it's, it's like the whole list of, 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 of boxes that come, like, okay, where can I place you now in? Like, are you, okay, but you dress like this, or but you don't wear a headscarf, so then wh where are you? Are you progressive? Are you conservative? Do you, do you want 
you shake my hand? What, like it, it's as, as if these are all like relevant things all of a sudden. Um, so I think the, what is the misconception is just that as if as if now being Muslim doesn't make me an individual anymore. Mm-hmm. I think this is the biggest misconception. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, and for you, Joel? Um, I think for me, it's. There's always kind of this idea that you're not political because to be Christian is just to be kind, right? So I'm not allowed to say certain things about someone like Trump, for example, because I'm supposed to love him and I love him more. <laughs> like, well, I can, I can love you and hate everything that you say. <laughs> and I think that's one of the things that are really difficult. People think, even in the pulpit, if you're preaching something, it's not supposed to be political because you're going to put some people's backs up. Um, but even by not saying something, I'm putting people's backs up. So I think there's this idea that you're meant to have this kind of super wisdom where you critique everything without ever saying anything that actually um, hurts. Still love me. Exactly. And sometimes you have to look at somebody who's in power and say exactly what it is about them that they're saying and doing. And sometimes that is, you know, calling someone or something evil because that's what they're, you know, um, embodying because of what they're doing to people. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can't kind of skirt around that and just be kind because being kind doesn't necessarily save people. <laughs> and I think also it just relates to a notion of what do we mean by kindness and what do we mean by love. Because yeah. to me, love, true kindness, is like being there for me. Yeah. And uh, a strong love, and a strong love may involve calling someone in or out, defending someone, um, uh, supporting the marginalised or oppressed. And that doesn't necessarily feel nice or kind to other people, but that really is the loving thing. Absolutely. Yeah, from my perspective. Cool. Um, it related to that, I think, uh, but maybe we've kind of covered this. Um, I was going to say, have assumptions been made about your politics because of your faith? Yes. <laughs> yes. So people assume sometimes that um, even your politics will be conservative and that's supposed to be the same as your theology because um, as a Christian, they assume, and as a black Christian particularly, that you come from a very bad conservative Pentecostal background, um, and then all of a sudden they realise the things that you're passionate about and where it is that you sit politically, and they're like, oh, um, you're actually quite radical and fairly liberal in some ways and progressive, um, but also um, quite traditional on some things. So how does this come together? People don't understand how those lives and, and parts of you can fit. And you can see when you break people's idea of what they thought your politics were going to be mm. um, immediately. So definitely people do make assumptions. So I met Darrell this summer at a convening of black British activists in the UK. And so Darrell walked in and um, so he gave his talk um, and kind of was like talking about being a black queer minister who's also quite young. Um, we were all, a, a lot of black people I think grow up in the church and come to a point where they're like, mm, I don't know if my politics can really sit with this. And I really felt in the room this resonance of everyone being like, that Jarell existed was like really nice to us. Because I suppose to a degree we're also like, there's a person with a dog collar here, how is this going to work? So I think even amongst uh, activists who are supposedly progressive, we were also kind of like, how is this yeah. going to I could even feel that. Yeah, and then we were like, ah, we can breathe. Yeah. <laughs> so it was all good. It's funny when you go to something like Pride and people see you there like this and they're like very suspicious of you and kind of walk around you then they <laughs> see you interact with friends that you know from before and that, oh, he's actually cool, he's okay. <laughs> it's like, do I have to literally walk into Pride with a rainbow flag around yeah. you to know that I'm safe and acceptable? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Does prejudice exist there as well? Like, but yeah. You know. 
And that's kind of what I'm speaking to as well in doing this discussion, because I kind of feel like within art schools we're kind of sold this idea that everyone's really open-minded and progressive, um, and I think that there might be an open-mindedness to recreational drug use or different like sexual orientations, which I think is brilliant, but then I don't think that same latitude is given if I were to say, oh, yesterday I prayed, or yesterday I went to church. I think there would be people who are far more alarmed by that and perhaps judgmental. Um, and so I think it's interesting to try and push against that a little bit by opening up these discussions. Um, but for you, have there also been assumptions that have been made about your politics because of your faith? Yes. <laughs> I mean, in, in a way, similar to what you shared and similar to what I shared before, um, I mean, it's usually like, okay, the stereotypical ideas that exist about Muslims and then it comes with, I, I mean, I remember a couple of years ago when, I don't know when the Paris terrorist attacks happened, but okay. um, I remember that like the, um, it was on, I lived a shared, uh, shared housing and then uh, on the Monday I came back from visiting my parents and then my housemate asked me, I mean, and we weren't really friends, but <laughs> obviously, <laughs> but she asked me then like, okay, so Alina, tell me, what did you think of Paris? And I'm like, what, how are you even asking me specifically? Like, what do you think I thought of Paris? Like, of course it's terrible. What do you, what else would I say? Mm. And it's just these ideas that, um, yeah, again, like as a Muslim, you're not an individual. It's always like a whole box of things that come with as soon as you say that you're Muslim. Mm. Um, at the same time, as a woman, it's like, okay, why did you choose a religion that oppresses you? is what other otherwise people tell me. And I'm like, okay, do you even know what, what I believe about my religion myself? Mm, 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 you know? Um, yeah. And I think, so definitely my Muslim friends often have, uh, I think in an age of Islamophobia, like an expectation for them to answer, for them to answer to um, fundamental terrorist attacks. And that, that they're responsible. And I, I, I really, I don't know, I always feel for like this expectation or explanation from people. I remember when um, in Finsbury Park, where um, I lived for a period in North London, when there were attacks at the mosque there, a few days after, there were loads of people from the mosque just like giving out roses to people. And I was like, you don't need to do, I felt like saying like, you don't need to do this, but it kind of felt like they needed to show the local community that that wasn't who they were. And like, whilst they appreciated getting the flower, I also felt frustrated for them that they felt they needed to do that yeah. in that context. Yeah. Um, so what has been your experience of speaking about your faith in academia? Um, so, I mean, I feel that all of these questions are related. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to keep on repeating or giving the same answers, but... Um, Maybe it would be helpful, because when you're studying theology now, I'm sure it's fine to talk about faith. Oh, I see. Yes, yes, yes. No, no, no. I mean, it's it's a very Christian, white Christian setting, so that's a different story altogether. But this is what we're here for. Um, no, I just want to say that uh, first of all, I think that, and still to to finish up with the last question, is that uh, it always like as soon as you say that you're Muslim, it comes with a list of you have to now suddenly legitimize yourself. Like, mm -hmm. okay, but you're Muslim, but are you still okay? Like, who are you? Are you? Can we accept you? Um, and in relation to, to um, in general, religious identity, for me, my experience in academia is that um, 
no, it, it wasn't a thing that you could share, like your religious identity, like, okay, you're intelligent, you've studied university, how, how come you are religious? <laughs> like, this is not, you know, you're not supposed to be there, like, you're religious, like, this is, this is an academic space, mm-hmm. they're behind. Um, in theology, it's, of course, different, because the whole point is that you discuss religion and your faith. And like on introduction day, the first thing we had to share, besides our name, was our religious affiliation. Mm-hmm. Um, but then indeed, uh, I ended up being the only Muslim in class, and then it became, in a different way, this thing of like each time, like later on, in class, whatever subjects, and then the teacher just wanted to, to show he was inclusive. <laughs> Whenever, if he would share something or like te- yeah, teach us things, uh, it would be like, yeah, yeah, the same as with Islam and Buddhism and this and this. And I'm like, just by you know painting this brush that we're all the same, it doesn't make it inclusive. It doesn't make it now that I feel you're also, you know, actually discussing different religions mm-hmm. in this space. Um, and it's like, it's kind of double because I feel that, so this degree that I'm doing is called Peace, Trauma and Religion. Mm-hmm. So it's not called Peace, Trauma and Christianity, mm-hmm. you know, but in the end, this is what it is. But, you know, I feel that particularly in a country like here, um, some Christianity can be religion, whereas everything else needs to be particular and specific. And so I can come into this space thinking that it's going to be different religions being discussed, but then, no, it's like white Christian teachers who know about their religion, and then now I, as a student, have to stand next to the teacher and share the Islamic perspective and Islamic points and be the token Muslim in class to say, okay, this is how we have it. And kind of doing their job for them, it seems. Basically. Um, have I asked you the same question? No, no yeah. go. I think I've had the opposite in a way, but slightly similar. So for me, I've always been in the dominant and the space where faith, practice faith, has always been accepted. Um, but also, the thing about Cambridge was you could literally be in a lecture hall, and it blew my mind the first day I realised this, where there was an atheist student who read New Testament Greek better than I did, and this guy wasn't going into um, a ministerial context, he was never going to be ordained, he wasn't a Christian. Um, but he knew the Bible in one of its original languages better than I did. And I was like, why, why would you take such an interest in that? And how is it that this is possible and what does that mean for the rest of us? Um, but again, the white Christianity thing was still a problem. So in Cambridge, for example, there was no liberation theology practically on the, spectrum, on the um, curriculum at all. Um, that was a, a weird new thing. The theology that we got was very traditional, very much standard, um, you know, Old Testament, New Testament, Greek, Hebrew, church history. Can I just um, get you to, because I realise I'm assuming this here, yeah. how would you describe liberation theology for people that may not be familiar with it? Um, it's any theology I would say that is about listening to the voices on the margins. So you don't start from the most um, loud voices, the people you usually hear from. But what are the lived experiences of people who don't get their voices heard? So it's, it's a marginal kind of theology, I think. And it's very grassroots-based and led. And it's about always trying to critique what the power dynamics are in any relationship or context. Um, and using scripture always to set people free as opposed to um, dominate and oppress and, and you know, tie people up, basically, which is how scripture is often used um, as a weapon, yeah. sadly. How? Well, yeah, to, to, to add to that, this idea, right, that you, uh, as like taking hermeneutic as reality of interpretation, that you actively choose the side of the marginalized and the oppressed to, to understand scripture. 
and uh, to also understand that indeed fighting power and domination uh, was what the prophets came to do, and that like we are just continuing what the prophets came to do to begin with. And how did you both come to liberation theology? Like, did you grow up knowing about this? Did you have an awakening moment? Uh, did you read some James Baldwin or James H. Cohn? And you're like, how did it happen? You understand? Yeah. <laughs> or or has, has your politics of the small P always been like this in relation to your faith? I was gonna, I think it has been, but I didn't know that there was a tradition of this. And once I discovered, funny enough, it was actually Jewish theology that took me into the liberation theology thing. So I realised that there was this rabbi who was on the front line um, at Selma, and who joined the march with Martin Luther King, Rabbi um, Abraham Joshua Heschel. And he wrote a massive book, which was his PhD thesis, actually called The Prophets. And, yeah, The Prophets. And it's basically a kind of biographical book on the life of the prophets in so much detail that it just blew my mind. But this guy, the way he writes, um, is just amazing. Like, it's like medicine for the soul, it's so powerful, it's something that we need to read today. Um, and Rabbi Heschel was really the one who made me realise how important that prophetic voice in today's world was. Um, so I was glad that it wasn't a Christian voice, that it was this, this rabbi who was clearly very aware of what was happening in the civil rights movement, and it was his Judaism that, that made that link. Um, amazing guy. So. Um, so I think for me it's also, you said like, was it something you did I know, and like without knowing? Yeah, so I think that was for me kind of the case. Um, I think, and I think in a way it's related to how I grew up and, and in relation to my Kurdish background where, um, for example, my father didn't want to send us to uh, what we call madrasa, which is like Islamic schooling, mm -hmm. uh, because of like, okay, f from his experience, uh, you know, we, to put it very bluntly, like the Arabic language and like Arabs in the Iraqi context, like it's considered like the oppressor or was, you know, we, we experience oppression of that. And so this idea that, no, no, we're not going to go to these spaces, like this is not for us. Uh, and so in that way, the religion or how my father passed on his religion to us was very personal, uh, like in home and, 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 and in, in relation to also the, the Kurdish history, this idea that so on the one hand, I was receiving, so to say, personal religious education from him. Mm -hmm. At the same time, I received stories of, of, of my people's history and, 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 and the way we, uh, yeah, were different moments of resistance, different um, rebellions, different fights. And so in that way, I, I don't know, unconsciously, unconsciously, uh, the idea of justice and standing for justice became, or I related it to my religious identity. Um, and then I think actually later on who brought me more like actively to this idea that religion is supposed to be uh, liberating was Malcolm X. Ah, <laughs> I see so I think I was, I think I was like 17 it was funny because I came through his story in a very different way. I, I was in this time when for some reason I was curious to why people converted mm -hmm. to Islam and uh, I didn't know anything about black consciousness, like nothing. Uh, and I ended up reading his biography, and then I was like, okay, wow, wow, I was just like blown, <laughs> blown away. And, and through that, it's like more actively this idea that, you know, your, your religion is supposed to also be this tool that you use to, to liberate you and those around you. Uh, and you have no excuse to be, be quiet. Yeah, I think Malcolm X is referred to as like a seminal text for so many people. Like, when I read that, I was like... And I, and, and I remember I, I finishing his book, like, but he's not here anymore. Like, how is he not here? Yeah, yeah. Um, 
So, um, what examples do you know of people using faith in more progressive ways that people might be surprised to know about? Well, I have a friend who's in California, and um, he was an Anglican priest in, in London. Um, I won't say where he is in California now, because I think what he's doing is still a bit radical and, and not completely sorted, but um, I went to stay with him in uh, March this year. It was my first ever trip to America. And he is working with some people to open up a clinic um, in a part of California, which is quite a well-known area, a very um, gay-friendly area. Um, and it's a clinic where people can access PrEP over-the-counter um, in cash, basically, without having to have health insurance or anything. And he took me along to one of his business meetings, and I was just blown away. So there he was, as this priest, older than me, um, he's gay. And we went to this business meeting with people who have, like, millions and billions of pounds, and he was discussing with them about this clinic and how he wants to open it in a building where um, you can basically go through the doors for all kinds of other things, because they sell tyres in this building, and they also have, like, a florist in this building. And so... Um, Whoever's going in won't be easily identifiable from outside, as in, you know, why are they going there? And he specifically wants to do it for the, the black and Latino community in that particular area. Um, and he's a white British guy, and he's a priest. And I just, it made me reimagine my whole idea of my own priesthood, because I was like, in London, I can't see myself ever getting involved with that, but it's something I would love to be doing. Um, and he just tried to challenge me about reimagining what priesthood can look like. And he was like, why didn't you come to America? Because, you know, you have freedom and it's so different. Um, so that's one person who's definitely using, you know, religion and, and the world in a more progressive way. Um, and plug, 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 uh, Jarrell is currently writing an essay for a future publication for yeah. Stonewall. That's you right. Can speak to With Stonewall and HarperCollins, um, they're having an anthology being published in July, I think, next year. Um, so I'm writing an essay to my nephew, who I don't even have one yet. So my sister's not pregnant, but you never know. Um, <laughs> it's my unborn nephew, and I stole that idea from James Baldwin, and I'm writing him about what it's like to be me in 2019. Um, so that's going to be an interesting thing once I get it done. <laughs> At the moment, I'm just there waiting for inspiration. So yeah, that's happening. Waiting for nephew to be I am. His name is Mordecai, by the way. It just came out of nowhere, and we bonded. So that's his name, and I'm sticking with it. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> Um, I think that so because of how I grew up and how I was raised, I never really had a community to to uh, go to or be part of also religiously, um, which always made me look for spaces. Mm -hmm. And um, I think one of the spaces where I kind of found it um, was when I was living in Cape Town. And there, I mean, there like through because of the history, the Muslim community there has a very uh, radical. Um, Say understanding, well, not the whole, but like a part of the Muslim community, uh, radical understanding of how they use their faith and, and religion in, um, for transformation and change. Uh, and there's one mosque which is known um, that, like in 19, I don't know if anyone here knows Amina Wadud, but in 1994 she was uh, the lady who was invited to uh, give the khutbah, which is the Friday afternoon sermon. Mm -hmm. uh, so to, she was the first one to um, give that as a woman. And this was a mosque, like an institutionalized religious, Islamic religious space that gave her this, gave her this space to do that. And until now, this, this mosque is like committed to what they call gender jihad. Mm -hmm. And uh, they are committed to, to standing for the community, to serve the community, and like in very different ways, like do different... Um, how to say, find different ways of educating also youth. Um, and just like to be out there in the community and to not just be 
a space for like religious gathering, but a space for okay, how do we assist and, and, and serve our society and our community? Uh, and I think that slowly I was, I mean, I always found spaces outside the Netherlands that did things that I could like, okay, I'm, I'm looking for this, I'm, I'm, I'm interested in this, but inside uh, the Netherlands I always felt, okay, where, where can I, where can I go when I'm home? Uh, and I think that eventually that then inspired me to um, start something myself, uh, which is what was mentioned, Harminerit, uh, which is a, um, I would say, safe spiritual haven um, for us, by us, as in uh, Muslims. And um, yeah, I don't know how to, basically it came from this idea that, okay, if, if we are uh, claiming that this religion is for everyone, then everyone should feel comfortable and safe. And, but this is not what people feel at this moment. And a lot of people feel excluded from the mosque. But people feel this is like, and I mean, I'm speaking also from my personal experience, like this male-dominated space where you're actually not supposed to be, you're not supposed to be seen, you're not supposed to be even present, but you're supposed to pray. And it's this, this weird thing, okay, you, what, what then now we do? And um, at the same time, this idea that, how do I put it? Basically reclaiming uh, what we believe the religious space is supposed to be. And I think this is what Haminirat is about, is reclaiming this space and reclaiming the space that it's also not just a space of worship, but also, also a space for knowledge exchange and, and discussions and, and questions. Questions together with appreciating your faith. So not just question in terms of criticizing, but a space where we can question whilst also still appreciating our faith. And how has that felt to create that and to be like a part of that? Like, do you gain from being there? Like, how, how has that felt being in the, that space? I mean, it feels like, at this moment, the only religious community I have in, in the city. So it's like kind of, uh, like, to have your spiritual home, mm-hmm. I think. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so kind of drawing the conversation back a little bit more to the arts and arts education, um, in what ways might the arts or arts education be more open to faith practices and I know you're both coming from more academic backgrounds um, so I was saying to Alina like you're from Amsterdam you studied down the road did the Rietveld feel like a place that was accessible to you um, and if not why and so Jarrell I would say the same view it like probably like a UK context would be like would you rock up to St. St. Martins and if not why not? <laughs> you, you can be honest. I mean, to, to be very honest, I didn't even know it was here. Like, I, I knew it was in, like, south. Like, yeah, I always knew it was okay somewhere south, south of Amsterdam. But um, I didn't know its exact location. And I think... But, I mean, I want to say that I'm... Yeah, I'm just speaking from a very personal experience where, in general, when it comes to art, when it comes to also just museums and anything related to art in the Netherlands specifically, that I've never really felt, um, how to say, I feel that in the Netherlands, like artists, and this is of course a big generali- generalization, but how I grew up, like it, it's elitist, and I didn't feel it was something accessible, but at the same time, I know that this is also academia, so it's, not, it's, it's related, but I think that for me, um, I was feel like okay, yeah, but I don't understand it or something. And how okay? Then and then I sit there and then, yeah. And Gerard, I suppose, because you're also a chaplain in a university, um, and so 
how does chaplaincy work in relation to art schools? Sure. Like, how, how does that work for you? I think that art students, both in Cambridge and at King's, I would say, are often the, the most wary of the clergy and the chaplaincy, I think. And it's weird because one of the chaplains who's been there a much longer time than me introduced me to one of the um, organists who play for the services in King's. In King's, we have a massive chapel in the main campus and there are chapels in other places. Um, so the church is visible, and I mean, it's an Anglican foundation, so everyone who goes there knows that and are reminded about it, and you, you see clergy around all the time. Um, and priests used to train at King's, so there's a long history of that. And in Cambridge, it's the same thing. Every college has a chapel, and a, a chaplain and dean. Um, but I, find, I found in that dynamic, even the choir folk are a bit like, even though they know my background, are still a bit hesitant to engage on a musical um, foot, where we have that foundation. So they're still a bit weary. Um, and I find sometimes that art students just don't sometimes understand why you're around. Um, like, why, why, why does there need to be a chaplain? Um, and they tend to socialise with each other often. And I find that a very hard rule to kind of break into, whereas um, the scientists always want to quiz you, so that's okay. You already have a thing there. The historians and me get on because I'm a historian, I love history myself. So, um, yeah, I find the arts group are the trickiest. Why do you think that might be? I'm not sure. I think because of the fact that the art students tend to spend a lot of time practicing their art together. So often, once their lectures and stuff are done, they're not often going home um, to like read, perhaps, but they stay and do things together with other art students. So the musicians are practicing together. Um, the choir folk, you know, they rehearse together. Then they go out for drinks. The artists are, you know, practicing their art there um, on campus. So they tend to spend more time away anyway. Um, but I also think there are preconceptions about what it is that I represent and what I might think about the art that they're doing or how it is that they live. Um, but we never get into that point of conversation to actually find out we have common ground. Yeah. Um. So on that point, I was thinking it would be a good moment to kind of open out questions from the audience um, and see if there are any questions that people might have. Nemo is going to kindly go around with his mic. Be brave. <laughs> 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 That's fine, <laughs> Thanks, Neymar. I'm mean, asking a lot of questions, but I was just um, thinking about the relation between religion and politics, and I was wondering, what, like, from a standpoint of radical politics, what do you think that faith and religion bring to political struggles? I mean, I think, sorry, I think that uh, the idea that, okay, what do we, I think to put it differently, I think that faith and religion is already often part of when we speak about politics, like it's not excluded. And so this idea, like when, when you think about like secular contexts where there's this understanding that religion is not a part of whatever is discussed, I think is an illusion. And so, um, to begin with, what do they have to bring is, 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 is understanding because bringing that in understands you or makes you understand it differently because it gives, it, gives a more of a complete picture of what is happening, let me put it like that. And I think that also, it also comes to the question of what do you define as religion, which is one of the things we discussed uh, over Skype, which is, um, to bring up a completely different point, what we were discussing, what we often hear when, let's say, you know, you share, okay, you're religious, and then um, you kind of 
you kind of get a condescending response, I could say, yeah, condescending response in, in a way of like, okay, yeah, I'm not religious, I'm spiritual. As if, you know, you being religious is not also spiritual and also like, okay, but what do you mean then when you're religious and not, or when you're spiritual and not religious, like what is the not? Um, what are you distinguishing yourself from? Um, and so I think it's about understanding that, um, well, to first define what we mean with that and then to second, to understand that um, religion, faith, spirituality is more present in politics and in, well, whatever we are talking about than we are aware of. Definitely. All I would say to that very quickly is that I think um, faith gives you a sense of perspective. So sometimes when I go through my Twitter feed, I get so depressed by the things I see happening in the world. And I think my faith gives me a sense of history as well, that this is not the first time and the last time that human beings have messed up. We'll keep doing it, and there is a bigger picture. So I don't need to get depressed. I just need to switch off my phone and be silent for half an hour <laughs> and realise that I can't save the world. So that's the thing that faith does for me. Stops me On from getting bogged yeah. down. And I was just thinking in relation to that, um, so number one with the religion versus spirituality conversation, I think um, I kind of would like to caveat the conversation with uh, there are a lot of religious institutions that I politically do not agree with and have a conservative politics that I don't mm. align with. And so I understand that some people are like, well, I'm not religious, I'm spiritual, because the religious experiences they may have had or the institutional experiences they've had have been so horrific. Um, but in answer to your question, I think that what uh, your faith, your spirituality, your religion, if you have that, can offer to your politics or your activism is kind of a holistic sense. So like, mm. Like you're saying, like we are not just theory beings, we're not just head, we are also heart. And when you look at uh, political struggles historically, um, there is often a spiritual aspect because in some ways I don't think you can just do it with your head. So if I think of like liberation movements across Africa and the ways in which uh, people also uh, went back to maybe their more ancestral religious practices as a kind of uh, decolonial act, all the ways in which the civil rights movement was also fought a lot through black churches, that these things aren't separate, and that to sustain you in the struggle, you have to have a belief and faith in something bigger than you. I, I see the faith as kind of like a, a support to help you continue in my conceptualization of it. Um, are there any other questions from the audience? Everyone's so shy. Oh, is that a question there? No. <laughs> <laughs> Here we go. There's me, coming up, I'm and I have to argue out that I have a very US-centered perspective, but I think that faith is very, very easily deployed in political actions. And so I guess I'm also wondering like, what kinds of methodologies can we have to bring it towards the kinds of conversations that we want to have in these spaces? rather than the ones that I feel like I'm hearing, which deploy a lot of violence mm -hmm. on behalf of, yeah, on behalf of faith, which is pretty terrifying. Um, I think for me, often the voices that we hear are the loudest ones. And I think that's a problem, because the loudest voices are often the ones speaking the least sense. And I find that there are so many people who are speaking with a prophetic voice now, and those are often people who have not written books, who do not have Twitter, actually, who just exist. And sometimes it's... it's trying to find those people. And you only find them by, by living in community, right? And encountering people. That could be your neighbour, actually. Um, and I think that's quite important. That actually, the loudest voices are the ones that often 
get all of the time and all of the attention. Um, and there's always more than one voice speaking in every you know, religious organisation or religious community. I think that's going to be the place where the change comes from, is, is from the bottom and from people who you know, we might not even know about, but who are actually doing life-changing work. You know, like, a bit like my friend in America. I mean, you know, he would never boast about that, but when I saw it, I was like, wow. Um, and he's in America, and he's making a difference to people's lives on the ground. Um, but he doesn't have a Twitter account, and he's not going to be sharing his you know, information broadly. But that, for me, is a massive political um, and an activist movement that he's doing there, which is um, saving lives. You know? um, so listen for the people that are not shouting often. A follow-up question on that because you've both spoken about prophets and prophetic voices and I think also there's like a misunderstanding of what we mean by prophet and so what would be your definitions of a prophet or prophetic voice? Um, well I guess in a very just as a religious answer a prophet is a messenger of God. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, indeed, with that, so messenger of God, what is God's sorry? What is God's message? Uh, and so then, coming from the liberation theologist perspective, um, God's message, in my understanding, is is is, is not um, well. It's the opposite of domination. It's the opposite of oppression. Uh, it's liberation. It's uh, empower, uh, how to say empowerment for those on the margins. Um, and so. When I mean, so one of my uh, favorite liberation theologians, uh, Islamic liberation theologian, is is Farid Isak, and and one of the things he he um, how to say expresses is this uh, that when you this idea that if you uh, are also committed to um, uh, sorry I'm, I'm just well basically the idea that you walk in the path of the prophets, this idea of okay if you are also committed to to uh, liberation to to ending the oppression. This is uh, you're you're not doing something against what is called orthodoxy. Like this is part. This is the other half orthopraxis, and this is walking in the path of the prophets. This is what they were doing. Like if you think of why, what what did Jesus do? What did Moses do? What did Prophet Muhammad do? Like they were all not just having their message of okay, there is a God that you need to worship, but they were actively. Uh, committed to um, the poor and the marginalized in their society and so what makes us think that then for us worship is enough, like what makes us think that then we should not also do these things Mm -hmm. Uh, so I think in that sense prophetic uh, is to think about okay, what did the prophets do and what was their message Mm -hmm. and to include the praxis next to to the words Mm -hmm. I think for me that's definitely, um, that resonates very strongly, I think one of the things is Prophetic voices aren't people who, who um, choose not to keep silent. It's those who can't keep silent because of the vocation in them. Mm. That there's a sense that they cannot see people being oppressed and do nothing about it. It's an actual... Um, it's a force. I think it's like fire within you that makes you act. You can't be um, silent in the face of injustice and oppression. And the thing I think that the prophets realise is, is that when God wants all people to be free, that also means the oppressor. Mm-hmm. Because the oppressor is also oppressed. And is also, um, in a weird way, a victim to, to evil and injustice. And God's sense of freedom is also for, you know, was for Pharaoh. That letting the people go was not just about um, setting the Israelites free. It was also about Pharaoh becoming free. Mm-hmm. Little did he know it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, that sense of prophetic fire for me is really important. It's a burning sense of having to do it. 
Um, I have a quick question in terms of like, how have you both dealt with possible pushback from you holding uh, certain politics in relation to your religion? Like have people um, of your faith said that you're not doing it properly or incorrectly or because of your identity said you shouldn't be here? Like how do you conceptualize that in your faith and how do you, how do you deal with those people? Well, I mean, I guess different from you, I'm like not as public, like I, I mean, I'm, I'm a student, I um, do these gatherings by, by monthly, but it's not like uh, very intentionally, I'm not publicizing them, I'm, I am, I guess, today, but usually <laughs> I'm not really uh, public about it, and it's something, you know, it, it's for us, by us, we, we have no interest in, 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 in reaching any media and making any public statement. I mean, it could be interesting or relevant, but um, by the way, these then things are used in Dutch debate, uh, yeah, Dutch debate culture, Dutch debating culture. Sorry, uh, we are not interested in, in in being part of that. We're not interested in being used to then be opposed to. Okay, so this is the good Muslim, this is the bad Muslim, um, and so we just keep very like how to say low key um, what we do, uh, and so as a positive result of that, I don't receive a lot of, of pushback but on a personal level and personal engagement yes for sure but um, yeah those people are not my friends and I'm not, ke- I'm not keeping them close so also in that sense um, I just keep distant from that mm-hmm. in a very to say it simply it's a difficult one to answer for lots of reasons but this is a pertinent question I mean it, it's costly personally for me I think to own publicly just in the world, let alone the church, your identity. There are people who are not Christians. You know, on, on one particular protest we were at um, in London and in Cardiff, there are people who weren't Christians who were saying that they didn't think clergy should be at that kind of thing. You shouldn't be protesting. Go home. Um, and at the same time, there are people within the church who are very violent against people who are um, political in any sense. Um, but particularly to own your identity in terms of being part of the LGBT community as a young black clergyman in the UK is tough. Um, I probably can't even explain to you the extent to which it is costly on a day-to-day basis. Um, recently, it's cost me a lot. Um, and I think sometimes people don't realise that and they kind of think you just kind of are able to do this. And isn't it wonderful that you're living your truth because this is we're very um, positive about that now, but people don't see the cost of it. And often I find myself asking myself the question, um, I'm there as much as I can be for those other communities and when it hits back at you and you're the one who's facing the cost you know where is the rest of the LGBT community or those on the left or those activists when you need them um, when it's genuinely costing you and actually there's little support I think sometimes the other way and a lot of people who celebrate the fact that you come to support um, events and individuals on the other side but when you need it as a person in leadership um, it's very hard to find sometimes and you notice the silence then of of people who are meant to be in solidarity with you. And you're like, hey, wait a minute. I thought we were in this together. <laughs> but, so yeah, it is costly. And so I want to end on thinking about possible ways forward. Because I feel like in critical studies, we critique things. But I think it's also really important to have kind of material examples or ideas or proposals of how things might be different. And if, as I've posited, that um, maybe art spaces could be more open to religious faith practices, what could you see ways where, I don't know, more progressive people of certain faiths might feel 
like spaces like this were for them? This is quite a big question. Um, I was wondering if you had any ideas, or what, maybe what on a personal level would make you feel like this is a space where you're also welcome, and you could talk about your faith. <laughs> cool. Well, I, I was thinking about the fact that in the UK, at least, I mean, I don't know this context that well at all, but um, we have lots of art students in a place like London, for example, and our churches have space. And I often think, you know, churches have space, but they also have money on the whole. And art students often have creativity, but not much money. And I don't see why these two things can't come together. There are huge churches in London, which, you know, if I was the vicar of a massive church in central London, I'd be thinking, let's have some kind of art installation in here, do something radical for us, um, let's hold concerts in here, let's do something where we can combine the liturgy and arts. Um, but that's because I accept and I appreciate that. Um, but I think it's a way of thinking about how these things can come together. You know, the church has cash. And if, if people could only build up relationships, um, you know, we could do really good things for each other and for the community. And I don't see why that doesn't happen. And I also think that arts world has a lot to teach the church about sex and the body and being comfortable with that and open and an openness which the church on the whole can't really deal with. Um, and there's a mutual thing there of how we could meet each other halfway, I think. So be bold. Go find your local like religious people and invite them <laughs> in. I, <think. laughs> I mean, I have little to add to this. <laughs> I like those ideas. Really? Um, yeah, I mean, I think it, it's also about, I, I guess, so as a consequence of that, that would um, had to say change conceptions about like religious people. Like, what does it mean to be religion? I think that this is. Um, the, the, the change that could be helpful in the sense of, okay, when do you feel with your religious identity uh, or that your religious identity can be included when you enter uh, is that this perception uh, has changed. Sure. So, uh, yeah, that's all I have to add <laughs> to your good idea. <laughs> Brilliant. So, uh, we've come to the end. Um, I'd really like to thank you too for showing your perspectives. It's been really enlightening. Um, and yeah, if we could have a round of applause for our guests.